This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 741 with Erica Hayasaki. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 741. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Erica Hayasaki is a shameless mom of three. She is also the author of The Death Class, a former 2021-2022 Knight Wallace Reporting Fellow, and a 2018 Alicia Patterson Fellow. She has received awards from the Association of Sunday Feature Editors, the Society for Features Journalism, and the American Society of Newspaper Editors. Her new book is Somewhere Sisters, the story of twin girls who were born in Vietnam, separated at birth and raised in different parts of the world. This true story captured my attention when Erica's email landed in my inbox because it brings together so many pieces of society and culture that I'm so intrigued by and interested in and also like components of humanity that I want to know more about everything from twins and nature versus nurture and adoption and interracial adoption and just so many layers in this story, this true story, I think brings together so many fascinating components about these two little girls. And so I think you're going to love Erica's story. And I also really appreciated being able to hear how Erica took responsibility for telling this story in a really intentional, thoughtful, careful, considerate way, because you're talking about two girls who are now women, but talking about their lives and all of the layers of the ways that they were raised. So you are in for a treat with this conversation. So listen in to hear Erica share all about her book, Somewhere Sisters, and the story of these two girls who were separated at birth and then raised in various parts of the world or in different parts of the world. She also talks about how she reconstructed the girls' stories and also their story of their reunion when they were 13 years old. She talks about the science around nature versus nurture from twin studies. We dig into the unexpected trauma that can come with twin and adoptee reunification that we don't see play out on TV and movies. She talked about how she had to follow the journalistic truth of each person's story in the book and not be connected to her own hopes for the girls or for the story. 
She talks about the legislative loophole in which international adoptees are not automatically granted citizenship and the push for legislation to change this and why it's so important. She talks about some of the ethical concerns of interracial adoption. She talks about why this book is a powerful invitation to consider identity. And we really dig into that piece around your identity and those the identity of the people around you and just how important it is to always be keeping that those components and layers top of mind. And then we talk about how sharing our layered identities with one another allows for a more connected human experience. Oh, I just loved this conversation. I'm so fascinated by Erica's work, by her talents as a writer and her ability to share stories. And you're going to hear so much of that in this conversation. And I know you're going to want to go out and get her book, Somewhere Sisters. So with all that, please join me in welcoming Erica Hayasaki to the Shameless Mom Academy. Erica, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy to have you here and so excited to dig into your work. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about the book, which I have so many questions about the book, I want you to tell us a little bit about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio. And what are you most excited about right now? Well, I'm a mom of three. So I have a nine-year-old daughter and I have five-year-old identical twin boys. And I am very excited because my daughter made honor roll yesterday. And, you know, I, we had a really rough start to the school year, the twins transitioning into kindergarten. I did not know if any of us were going to survive that. Um, and, and there were a lot of behavioral problems all around and very busy, but we've come through that and we seem to be in a much better place now. So I feel excited about that. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Those are huge transition. Like not just one kid going to kindergarten, two kids going to kindergarten. Yeah. And we actually, which, you know, is interesting because I wrote a book about separated twins, but we did choose to separate our twins into different classrooms. And I I did not realize, even though I just wrote this whole book, it's a different situation, but I didn't realize how much that was really going to affect their behavior. It really, really did. And so it was, it was tough. It was tough, but they're doing okay now. Was that because they had been so used to being together that they weren't, that that was like a shock to the system? Yeah. I mean, they'd been together. I mean, they've never been apart a day in their lives. So but they also distract each other and get into a lot of mischief. And I felt like any teacher <laughs> who had to deal with the both of them at once was going to be <laughs> in a world of trouble. I didn't want to do that to the teacher. So we decided to separate them so that they could sort of, you know, be independent on their own in their classrooms and try to do these things. But didn't, you know, I did underestimate how much that bond, like that was almost a little bit traumatic for them, even though they were next mm. to each other in classrooms. Yeah. Um, And they didn't know how to process that emotionally. So they were acting out a lot in class. So it was really interesting. It was really rough, but they're okay now. They're great. But yeah, it's funny because I wrote a book about twins being separated (laughs) in a different way. And then I went through this just now with them in a very much smaller. Well, it's funny how the things from our professional lives that we think we like can carry into like our mom toolkit don't ever work out. Like you're like, I know about this. It'll be fine. And then it's not. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was like, I should know all about this. And in a sense I did because they were acting out so much. And, um, I, and then I turned on my journalist hat and I said, wait a minute, I know why, like, I know why this is. Mm. Um, and I, and I was able to like talk to the principals and the teachers and say, look, I think this is what's happening. Here's the psychological research on twins being separated you know, even yeah. in settings. And I actually did have that, you know, research at my hands, but I was in my mom frame. So I wasn't thinking journalists. And when I put the journalist right. on it, took it to the school, then I think everybody started to understand what was happening and um, working with them to be, to be okay. Right. Right. Oh my goodness. So let's dig into the book. You wrote a stunning book about the story of twin girls, a true story about twin girls born in Vietnam separated at birth. Can you talk a little bit about the story and what inspired you to share Isabella and pr- tell me how to pronounce the other ha. little girl's name? Is it ha? Ha, yeah. They're they're now in their mid 20s actually, but I am um... Yes. Uh, yes, I in my mind yeah. <laughs> not little girls still, but yes. <laughs> they're young but sharing women. their story with the yeah. world as you cuz you really start from the beginning um of their yeah. story. Absolutely. I learned about their story uh, shortly after giving birth to my own twins. I was writing about twin studies, met a twin researcher in California who introduced me to a bunch of twin pairs. And I heard their story and became, you know, immediately interested. It's inherently interesting to hear about twins born 
you know, and separated at birth and then raised in a different parts of the world that that automatically just was like what happened there um and how did they did they end up reuniting so I was able to meet the family meet them spend time with them travel to Vietnam interview birth families adoptive families and tell the story of these twins who you know spent most of their lives in entirely different worlds Ha lived in Vietnam she was raised she was adopted by a biological aunt and her aunt's partner raised in a village on the coast of Vietnam you know, in very simple, but beautiful life. And her sister Isabella was born lawn and adopted from an orphanage in Vietnam uh, when she was around four, along with another little girl at the time who was named New, who was uh, uh, renamed Olivia. So these two girls were given um, different names by their adoptive families mm. and moved to America and raised in the Midwest in Illinois. And so these twins, Isabella and Ha, lived totally different lives, but they were identical twins and did not know much about each other until one day they were reunited. And so the story follows that journey, but it also ends up exploring some questions around identity through nature nurture science and also deeply looks at the history of adoption in the U.S. and also transnationally and starts to understand the complexities mm. that come along with not only the adoption process, experiences of all the different family members, but also um, of reunion. So as a sociology major with a psychology minor, twin studies have always been like one of my favorite things. Yes. Um, there's just so much, um, it's so much interesting research out there. Um, and you already mentioned nature versus versus nurture. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned in these from this situation of these two little girls being raised in really different worlds and then coming together as young women and what you saw in them that kind of indicates things about this nature versus nurture question. Yeah. I mean, I think twins have been studied as, you know, historically to understand how much genes versus environment play a role in shaping who you become, whether that's your personality traits or your intellect. And twins who are, have identical, who have the same genes, though that would be identical twins, but are raised in a very different environments have been always a sort of area of interest for scientists to, you know, look at them to think about how different did they turn out and how similar. And then if it's very, very similar, for example, and it's in a completely different environment, then you can determine from that genes really do play a huge role in who you become. But what I've learned from you know, studying twin science, these writing about these twins and raising my own twins, frankly, is it's much more complicated than nature or nurture alone. And throughout history, you know, science has swung in different in both directions, like it's nature or it's nurture. And there've been some very ugly experiments that I do get into in the book a little bit. But what we do now know is that there is this interplay between your genes and the environment and the environment that you're raised in, even within the same home, you can live in the same home as identical twins as mine are and have different experiences within that home, which would be your non-shared environment within that home. And so those non-shared environments play a role and impact your, can impact your genes. And we do know also that there's a whole field of epigenetics that also looks at how genes are impacted by environment. So inevitably, essentially, some parts of your experiences in the world can switch on or off certain genes. And that's, you know, that's going to be different for everybody. And then of course, there's also the randomness of chance, these, these, these factors within the environment and within, you know, your genetics that you can't even control. There's mutations within identical twin genes as well that make for different humans really. So identical twins raised together or apart are incredibly distinct and impacted by both aspects. And for these particular twins in the book, they are very distinct and incredible young women who have come along on their own journeys, have very different experiences, have some aspects of their personalities that might be similar in theme, but they're very much distinct individuals, just like my own five-year-old twins, who I see as very different even though they have had all of these similar experiences. And yeah, again, it's yeah. a result of their environment and their genes and this um, complex 
uh, interplay between both forces. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. And are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. Can you talk a little bit about the girls learning of one another and then going through the process of of reunification. So it was, you met, and correct me if I have any of these pieces wrong, you met the twins and their adoptive families, you traveled to Vietnam, and then there was a reunion with the girls there as well, right? Yeah. So I was not along for all the reunions. What I did is I came into their lives later. I was, they were around um, 18 at the time that I came in to their lives five years ago, okay. um, over five years ago, I guess now. And I am a journalist that teaches different forms of nonfiction storytelling. One of those forms is called narrative reconstruction. So that involves, like, similar as if you were writing your own memoir, you need to delve into your memories and your experiences mm-hmm. and really flesh those out on the page. So I spent a lot of time interviewing all of the people in the story, the twins and the family members to reconstruct these moments of reunion, these pivotal moments in their lives. And when it's on the page, it feels um, vivid because it's the vivid memories coming from their own interviews. It's never anything that I would make up. I never make up things, but I try to report everything with a source. So their reunion came about when they were 13 and that was put into motion by the adoptive mother in the U S she found out about the twin and really made it her mission to try to reunite them. And 
did end up, you know, meeting the twin in, in Vietnam first on her own with her two of her other daughters who are not adopted, and then eventually reuniting the sisters at 13. The reunion was not the kind of made for TV reunion that you might see on some shows. It was much more um, complicated than that and uncomfortable. And some might even say there's trauma and re- there's definitely trauma in reunion from what I've come mm-hmm. to learn about adoption. And so I appreciated though, the honesty of those experiences from the sisters, because it really did kind of break some of these tropes that we might come into stories about twins, twins reunited, adoption, adoption, reunited, family members yeah. reunited and, and have it, you know, kind of come to see as like these happily ever after narratives where really there's a lot of people involved in these stories and there's a lot of emotions and it can be really hard. And I think that the reunion does depict some of that complexity too. That makes so much sense. I think that from an outsider view and also like Hallmark movies, (laughs) that things seem really formulaic where you're like, oh, like twin plus twin plus like birth mom equals happy family. Or like we think we can it's this really like templated thing and the nuance to the, and layers and human nature and past trauma, not only like their trauma that they experienced together when they were placed for adoption and pre being placed for adoption. And then in that process, but then whatever they've lived with over the, you know, the 13 years that they were apart. I mean, there's like so many variables in there. It makes absolute sense that it would not be a hallmark moment. Yeah. And not to mention all of the kind of concentric circles of family members that are reached beyond these two sisters, these twins, like there are grandmothers, there are Mm. family members that are connected through the other child that was adopted and become part of this story. There are sisters and cousins and aunties and birth moms. And, you know, all of these people have their own experience with this story and they're not all going to see it the same. But that is what makes it much more complicated and not a Hallmark movie, because when you think about the emotions from the different people involved, it does start to really break down some of those tropes or those ideas that we've been fed through, you know, literature, Disney movies. You know, there's so many stories, like you said, around twins and adoption that are built around this one kind of linear fairy tale narrative. And this Mm -hmm. was not that. This was um, much more nuanced. And um, I think that's what made it very real um, as well. You know, this was a very human, real story with people and all of their different emotions and experiences in there. I'm curious as the person who was like holding the story and knowing that you had, that you were going to tell it and share it and write it. I'm curious what that process was for you. I'm imagining you have to kind of let go of expectation and let things be what they're going to be and then honor the story for what it is correct me if I'm wrong, but like, what is that process like? Because in my mind, I would be rooting for that, like hallmark reunification, like let this be this happy moment. And then that's what I can write about. Yeah. And I think initially that's what I thought that would be until I started to understand the, you know, when you're reporting, you just follow what the truth is of the story. And so I even came in with assumptions. And then when I started to look at it from all these perspectives, and as a journalist, you can do that. You can interview the birth mom and tell her story and get this story through her eyes. You can interview the adoptive mom and get it through her eyes. You can interview the sisters and the different people. And then you start to see everybody's part of this shared story, but they're seeing it and experiencing it differently. Right. And it doesn't make one better than the other. It just makes it all part of this full narrative, but it is hard as a journalist because I, I think structurally it's really hard. You've got a lot of different people. They're all important. I don't think that, and there's people that are not even represented because there's a lot. I focused on the mothers and the daughters, the women in this particular narrative, but there's a lot of people that I didn't get to focus on. Um, But, you know, you, instead of maybe making it the way a film might play out with one key protagonist, Agonist that's going through the whole journey mm-hmm. you're getting it in more of a Rashomon style of storytelling where you have this person here and they're seeing it this way and this person here and when you put it all together what you see is I think hopefully a more honest portrayal of what this was like and that is what a journalist can do that might be different if you're maybe writing memoir and you're just writing it fully from one perspective but it yeah. does make it 
challenging and it, you have a responsibility to hold everybody's stories and hold to their truths and understand that their truths might also differ from one another. I'm curious what the journey of Isabella and Hass say about adoption and international adoption. And I have to share, I just interviewed and I don't know the, how the timing of this interview is going to play out with the other, other one, but I just had a conversation with the mom who adopted here in the U S and talking about the ethics of adoption. And she adopted her son 11 years ago. And she's like, I thought I was really ethical 11 years ago. And there's, I would do so many things different. So I'm curious, I think, and this was not an international adoption. So I'm like, I know there's going to be a lot of layers to your answer, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really, there is a lot in the book. I mean, it's not that much because I'm not an academic necessarily. I pull from a lot of academic research and a lot of scholars have studied critical adoption studies for many years, for decades, really. And there are a lot of voices of adoptees today who do make it, they're in the book as well, some of them, but they inform the book because they have grown up and have come and learned how to use their voices through podcasts, through TikTok, through writing, through, you know, Mm -hmm. all the different ways, Twitter, to talk about their real honest experiences with adoption, which sometimes does involve this trauma of the very separation, which you know, sometimes does involve that confusion around, wait a minute, I was always told my story began with my adoption, but now I've realized my story begins long before that, because I've started to learn about my, you know, ancestors from, you know, previous generations who, you know, maybe are living or not, I've tried to search, maybe searches don't turn out well, maybe searches become incredibly painful and traumatic Mm -hmm. for them. You know, when you adopt transracially, There's a lot of conversations that have been even pushed into the forefront more now over the last couple of years as we've grappled with different questions around race in America. And those questions come into our homes. And as uh, children, if you're, for example, raised Asian American and in a home or a community that's mostly white, and we've been in a moment of like anti-Asian hate and like, how do you have those conversations? How do you get onto the same page in a home. So those complicated questions, there's bullying that happens, questions around immigration and U.S. citizenship. There's a moment in the book where the sisters really grapple with, they run into realizing that they're not citizens. So there's a whole um, chapter that explains that a lot of adoptees who were adopted transnationally during a certain time frame, one, one day wake up after thinking they're American citizens their whole lives and realize wait a minute, I'm not a citizen. And some people have even been deported because of that. There's been suicide because of that. There's high rates of suicide in the adoptee community because of, you know, a lot of these questions that have gone swirling and unanswered and maybe not addressed with the right mental health, you know, systems in place to serve adoptees. And then there's a whole question around the system of adoption, whether it's the history of adoption transnationally, you know, in the country or within the U.S., And that is also another topic that I do get into. But when you start to look at it from, again, all these different perspectives, you walk away realizing this is not the Disney movie that I maybe, you know, when I was a kid, it's a lot more complex. And so oversimplifying it doesn't do anybody any good. I think you have to understand that uh, multifaceted reality of, of adoption. And I think we are in some parts of our country do, doing that because of these adoptee voices and these conversations being had. And in other ways, not always, um, you know, we saw with after, um, you know, the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade, um, a lot of people sort of just turned to adoption as the answer to the end of abortion. And a lot of adoptees said, wait up, hold up a minute. Like, let's not just make this the fix because that's right. historically not been at all helpful for the actual children who are getting adopted to be raised like as if this is like the answer to some policy decision that's being made like so there's a lot of deep discussions that happen around that and I get at some of that in the book but I do also reference and include a bibliography that has a lot of additional reading and resources for people who want to start to learn about all these issues because there are people who've been speaking out and researching this for decades really yeah I think that the oversimplification or the Disney version story of adoption. So it doesn't honor 
anyone's story, whether you're looking at it from the perspective of the adoptee or you're looking at it from the perspective of the biological parents. And this is something that came up when I was interviewing this other family, this other mom, an adoptive mom. And she said, like, I thought I would have done so many things to honor the birth mother in this moment. And she's like, don't know that I did it justice though. So there's all these nuanced pieces that we don't know about and don't talk about because yeah. we have it so systematized. <laughs> like we have it, we're like step one, step two, step three, which doesn't really honor the human experience. And yeah. so I uh, like the nuance and all of the layers that you just mentioned make so much sense. And when we look at adoption as a simple solution to ending abortion, it's such like, I don't have a word for it. It's so disingenuous, so damaging and harmful. And I mean, there's just, it's, there's going to be so many really, really complicated things that come out of that. And I mean, you point to like the worst thing, which would be suicide rates among adoptees. Like that will go up. Yeah, (laughs) We look at really, really hard, ugly truths. Especially if there's not the mental health services put into place, you know, immediately. And, and as far as, you know, just that complexity, I mean, it is true. These conversations, uh, we see them happening online. We see, you know, adoptees pushing back against the narrative, but we also see that that narrative exists still, that, yeah. that oversimplification, mm-hmm. which it, it doesn't do justice to the reality of these experiences. And so it was important to me to represent that and to represent the voices of, you know, different people who are adoptees and have been working in this area for many years and have really thought deeply about this. So that has been very important for me. Can you talk a little bit about, I want to go back for a minute. You talked about this, which I've never heard this until you said it about um, children being adopted from other countries, not being U.S. citizens, and that there's now a push for legislation to protect these children. This is like unimaginable to me that a child in late teen years would all of a sudden be realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm I'm not a US citizen. I can't imagine what that would do to someone who probably very reasonably so would have some struggles around identity. And then to be told that, can you talk a bit about like, what is the loophole? And then also what's the push for legislation look like? Yeah. I mean, there were, unfortunately, a lot of children who were adopted um, from overseas during a certain time period. And they, for whatever reason, were not granted citizenship, although their parents thought that they were. They assumed that they, you know, came over and they become U.S. citizens and that was automatic. And nobody really questioned that. I mean, they just sort of thought that would be automatic. And the children then grew up and thought that they were U.S. citizens and then come to find out that they're not. So what happened with these sisters in the book and what has happened with other young people who have grown up is that they have realized that there was a loophole in this legislation, in this law. And there's this group called Adoptees for Justice that is working on this, has been working on this for years to get citizenship automatically granted to the people who um, have been living here for their whole lives and um, for a long time at least, and, and are not citizens still to this day. And that did recently get approved under something called America Competes. Act, the American Competes Act, but it's not fully finalized and still a fight. And I think people who are interested in this issue should look up adoptees for justice and, you know, see what they're doing to continue to push awareness and to continue to ensure that adoptees are granted citizenship. Definitely. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. 
I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I want to ask your thoughts around, and I'm curious from, there's multiple angles you might want to take this question from, but the ethics of white people adopting non-white babies. And I'm asking this from like this, what you have seen through the story of Isabella and Ha. And then also you are not a white woman yourself. And I'm curious, like, so I'm sure that there was pieces of that when you see that through in their story. And then you also recognize as a woman of color, like what would the implications potentially be for someone like you, if you had been raised by someone of a different race than you? Well, interestingly, I do have a white mother. <laughs> oh, you do? I didn't know this. As I was saying it, right as I was saying it, I was like, I probably should have asked first. I no, made a no. whole bunch of assumptions. So, no, yeah. I mean, I, I moved through the world and people never, you know, Asian American friends I've had for years don't know sometimes that I am mixed. And, you know, pardon my super ignorant question and thank you for the immediate correction. Oh, no. I mean, I <laughs> present as Asian American. I moved through the world that way, but I certainly understood. I understand these complexities on a different, on several levels. So I could relate to the experiences, though I cannot relate to being adopted. I am not an adopted person and I will never fully know what that is like. I could relate to some of these similar themes of feeling like, you know, different, or maybe you have a parent who doesn't quite understand your experiences, or maybe there wasn't Mm -hmm. always a comfort level to talk about these experiences. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we have, in our society, there's a lot of discussions around people of different races, raising children of a different race. My children are mixed. My husband is um, Jamaican, black. My children are black and mixed with Japanese and white. And so we have to, like, we make a very concerted effort in our home to talk about all of what that means. And um, mm-hmm. it is not a, just like it's not a fairy tale, a colorblind kind of multicultural, we are the world you know, Disney ride. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> up with that. And I just think that, you know, there's a long history that you, you know, I do also get into in the book that I think has been really educational for me and helpful to know. And I don't think it's for me, it's definitely not going to be one thing is right or wrong. I come from a much more complex background than that. But I do think it's important to have the conversations like, yeah, my children are mixed. If they present to the world as black and they're walking down the street and there's a police officer that makes an assumption and, you know, how do they, how are they prepared to handle that in a certain way? You know, we have to have those conversations, right? So, you know, I think I was bullied as a child for being Asian American and so were the sisters in the book. And I think if I was able to have had those more open conversations at home, that would have been really beneficial to me, but sometimes you internalize it and don't talk about it because you don't know how to talk about it with a parent who might not know where you're coming from on it. So again, complex. I do address mm-hmm. it in the book. I get into the history. I get into the different points of view around it. And I think it's, you know, just like with adoption, we just need to educate ourselves to understand all these nuances and complexities. Absolutely. How was your life impacted through getting to know the twins and then through caring, like holding space for the story. I feel like that wouldn't be something that you could just be like, and no job done. Book is done. Bye. <laughs> no, it was deeply impactful for me to have the conversations about all of these issues that we've just raised, especially identity, which is a theme that I think has always run through my work in different ways. In some ways this gave me permission to ask harder questions around race that I was scared of asking or to really ask these, like you just asked, like, what are the feelings around raising a child of a different race? You know, like Mm -hmm. that's something that's not easy to write about. You know, there's a lot of emotions and feelings around that. And, um, but having these conversations over the years with the sisters engaging in this research, seeing these parallel themes, being in this like moment of the last couple of years where we've had really honest conversations around race, I think, in America and still need to have more. I think that's changed me and and has given me more direction to kind of tackle these issues in different areas of my writing and work life too. So that has helped and changed me. And I, so I really credit the sisters and the family for, you know, teaching me, like I um, had all these interviews with them, but through the whole process, I was learning from them and I was learning about myself and I was learning more about like our society and these intersections of race and identity that 
you know, are always interesting to me, but it gave me a chance to really study the history. And I think that was really great for me and will be great for my students and for my children and my family as well. And hopefully other people who read the book. Yes. Which is my next question is I want to know who did you, when you decided to tell this story, who were you telling this story for and who should go get the book? I mean, I think there's my readers I said this in my afterward are really my students. I teach in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. I have really smart undergraduate students. All we do is study nonfiction storytelling and they write nonfiction stories. They report stories, they do interviews and they critique these works of narrative nonfiction. And they have really smart thoughts and comments about all of this. That's like, that's a lot of pressure for you to write this book for that. Like for (laughs) to know that like they're going to, Hold your own standards up to your work. I know. I also have learned that nobody, everybody, you'll give a whole classroom a book and it could be the most amazing book and they'll all come back with different opinions about it that some will hate it, love it. And that's, again, it's sort of like with any story, you have these different experiences around a story and people just, they read it differently. They see it differently based on their life experiences. And and, and so that's how a piece of literature will always be. And that's why I, I'm okay with that criticism. I'm I'm okay with that conversation as long as it's have, sparking that conversation. But I know my students who are from a lot of different backgrounds um, are smart readers. They're learning about the world and they are the readers, you know, it wasn't geared toward just an adoption audience. Although I love that adoptees, for example, have um, in many ways come out and supported and written and participated in this book. But I just want people to read it because at the end of the day, it's also a book about identity and about what shapes who we become and these questions that are hard to answer about how do we become who we become? What would our life be like if it was different? And would it be the same, you know, if we had lived, you know, made different choices, but yet the path was already written for us? Or do we have some control over that path? And we grapple with that through the questions of nature and nurture. And also with these twins who live these very different lives, but share the same genes. At any moment, anything could have changed and been swapped or somebody could have made a different decision about their lives, their futures. They could have made a different decision. And you always are wondering, well, would my life have turned out differently if I did that instead of that or if that would have happened? And not that we're ever going to answer that fully, but we do explore that in the book. And I think anybody who's human explores those, those deep questions about their own lives at some point too. I love that answer. It's funny. I was typing a note right as you said, identity, I was like, mention, this is an invitation to consider identity. And then you were like, and this is ultimately a story about identity. So I do want to start wrapping things up. And I do want to, I think this piece that's really important is this invitation to consider identity. And I, you made a really important comment a minute ago that you, through this work, you have given yourself permission to ask harder questions and step into maybe even uncomfortable conversations around identity and stepping forward with questions that maybe you wouldn't have asked previously. And I do that a lot in my work here. And I've been lucky to be able to do this over now 700 episodes, getting more comfortable asking uncomfortable questions and recognizing like, sometimes I'm going to totally flub it like I did today and then have to recover from that and be like, Oh shoot. Like that's how it's done. Like that's how we figure it out. And sometimes it's, ugly fumbles. And sometimes it's just, you know, little things and everything in between. But I think that the invitation to consider identity is something that we're always talking about on this show. And I want to invite everyone to read the book to continue to recognize all of the components of identity in terms of however we show up in ours, but also recognizing that everyone who shows up in front of us is carrying all of their components, all of their many identities with them. Um, And when we can honor that amongst each other, then we have a really different shared human experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important, whether you're each looking at one story and seeing it from a different point of view, and then for a moment, you can see it from the other point of view. You know, that is something that helps us understand each other. And that's sort of the whole point of storytelling for me. And that's what I try to teach the students. And that's, frankly, the lesson that has been passed on to me through my own mentors is, um, you know, we're not like trying to solve everything because that's a lot to ask with any kind of storytelling, (laughs) any kind of journalism, but we are trying to like part the curtain on humanity and help people see each other. And that's um, Mm. hopefully what, what we're doing, what I could do a little bit of in this project. 
I love that, that we're not trying to solve anything. We're just trying to see each other. We want to solve problems. And especially I think as women and as moms and as high achieving people, like we're like, I just want to solve the problem. And what if like the solution is just creating more space for us to see each other more wholly. I love that. Can you show, uh, share with us how you're currently showing up as a shameless mom? Yes. As a shameless mom, does that mean something that's like embarrassing or does it, it can mean-, mean whatever you want it to mean? I mean, it can be embarrassing, but it certainly doesn't have to be. Shameless mom. Well, I think that my, um, like I said earlier, my daughter made the honor roll and I was super proud of her, but I have played like zero role in her <laughs> achievements um, because, you know, I would like to take credit. I am not even able to do the level of math that she's doing right now. Like she laughs at me when I try to help her with homework because math was never my subject and she's already surpassed. And I just am so impressed because she's just doing everything on her own. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I feel very much occupied with my twins who are younger and a lot, a lot of um, uh, challenges that have happened there with the behavior and transitioning into school. And she's just sort of learned to be independent. So I feel very proud of her and I would like to take credit, but I can't really take any credit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so that's amazing where I'm at with being shameless right now <laughs> I love it uh, so I'm the opposite with math I was really good at math growing up and really loved it and so when my son who's taken an interest in math started asking me for like he's like mom can you give me some long division problems and I was like sure like let's do it together oh my gosh, I can't do it. Like, I don't remember how to do it. And I've been like bragging, like, I'm just, I'm really good at math. Like, let me show you how. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm not good at math. It turns out if you haven't done long division in like 32 years. They changed math. So that's a whole other thing. (laughs) I I didn't like do it in the beginning in the first place, but now there's no hope there. So he has all these sayings. Like I'm like, I'm like, you have to borrow there. He's like, borrow. I'm like, what do you call it? Like (laughs) totally different lingo. So, oh my gosh, Uh, Erica, this has been so fantastic. I so appreciate this conversation in so many ways, but I appreciate how you've taken something that is big that Hollywood tries to make pretty and tie in a bow. And you've really exposed the layers and the, the complexities and the nuance and just how dynamic this kinds of stories can be. Tell people where they can connect with you, find your work, find the book for sure. And all of the good stuff. I don't even think we've said the name of the, have we even said the name of the book at all? Introduce the book to us. Sure. The book is called Somewhere Sisters, a story of adoption, identity, and the meaning of family. It's from Algonquin Books, which is a imprint of Hache, and it's available really at any bookstore. I really encourage people to go to their local bookstores and support their local bookstores. And if they don't have it, you can always ask them to order it because they will do that for you. Yes. And, you know, you can find other, you can find me just by Googling Erica Hayasaki, H-A-Y-A-S-A-K-I. And I have a website and I have a lot of writing resources on there for storytellers as well and links to the book and other articles. Nice. So we will get your website. Are you at ericahayasaki.com? Yeah. Okay. So we'll link to that on the, on our show notes. We'll link to, I have your Twitter handle already here. Someone sent that your team sent that over. We'll link to the book 100%. If you can get through your local bookstore, if you are in Seattle, I go up to Finney books on Finney Ridge all the time and they special order anything for me. It's super close to my house. So anytime you can do something like that, your local bookstores appreciate it and they need the support. And yes. Oh my gosh, Erica, this has been such a great conversation. I so appreciate your work. You have to come back with the next book and talk about that one too. Sure. Thank you. If there is another, I will look you up and let you know. (laughs) I always say to people, I'm like, you have to come back when you write another book. And like, I've been doing this now for almost seven years. So people, they're always like, yeah, sure. uh Uh-huh. And then like two years later, they're like, so I decided to write another one. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, um, I was just talking to somebody today about how it's like, you forget the pain of childbirth and then yeah, that's sort of totally with writing. Totally. I love it. Oh my gosh. Well, Erica, thank you for this conversation, of course, but also thank you for the care that you've brought to this entire discussion on a greater scale in terms of writing the book and holding space for really important layers of conversation around adoption in general. Um, It's really, really important work. And I'm so glad that you're doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great podcast. I appreciate it. (music) 
Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.